this morning um, to set up the book of Nahum because the book of Nahum follows the book of Jonah. That's one of the reasons in this Route 66 that we're on, this journey through God's word, finding your way in God's word. It's interesting you think about that, finding the way. The way is Christ. And yet we find the mercy of Christ all through the Bible. Not merely in the Gospels, not just in the New Testament, but all through the Bible we find the mercy of Christ. We find our way in Christ all through the Bible in God's Route 66. Now, the book of Nahum, is, it's, it's unique as a book. It, it speaks in a different way, and it speaks to a particular problem. The philosopher David Hume... David Hume proposed the question, or the dilemma, looking around him at the world, and in the uh, 18th century, it wasn't so much different than the 21st century. He looked around him in the world and he said, if God is good, he must not be almighty. If God is good, he is obviously not in control because what I see around me is not good. If God is almighty, if God is sovereign, if he is indeed king of kings and lord of lords, then if God is in control, then God must not be good. Because why would a good God allow all of this to be going on? You can identify with that, can't you? You look at the situations and circumstances that are going on. I scan the news headlines I've told you before I'm a news junkie, but you follow what's going on in Syria and the gas attacks by a government apparently against their own people. And I would suggest there's probably gas being used to some extent on both sides and trying to point the fingers at the other guys. And meanwhile, people die in the middle of it. The, what's going on in, in, in Benghazi and Libya? Look at, look at the uproar in Egypt. Uh, the, I, I read this morning that in Sudan, they're evacuating Christians from Sudan to South Sudan because they're being murdered. Only about 2% of the population are Christians, 98 are Muslim, and they're being killed. They're being sold into slavery, and they and they're basically have to leave their home, be evacuated out. Look at the Chris Rain murder where people in Australia are saying, what is wrong with America? Where is the good? And... In the middle of a situation like that, an eight-year-old child is playing a game this week called Grand Theft Auto. And somehow there's a gun in the house, and the eight-year-old picks up the gun and shoots a 90-year-old woman in the back of the head just after playing Grand Theft Auto. This eight-year-old child doesn't really even know what they're doing to a large extent. Where is God? That's what people ask and things like that, right? I thought God was good, but why does a good God allow these kind of things to happen? If God is good, he must not be in control. If God is in control, he must not be good. Out of our experience, you see, we make our conclusions about what God must be like. Nahum confronts who God is and what God is like. We already know from earlier in the story, the book of Jonah, that God is merciful. We know that God is merciful. We know, we know that God is patient, that God is long-suffering, long-enduring, waiting to, to, to pour out his grace and to display his mercy and to welcome in the most undeserving of sinners. God is not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his desire. That's God's heart. And yet at the same time, that does not negate the fact that God is holy, God is right, 
God is just, and a just God cannot ignore sin, but he has to deal with it. He has to confront it, and he must judge it. He's done that first in the person of his son. He has judged guilt and sin first in Jesus and now extends his arms widely for whosoever will believe in the Son. But what about the whosoever won'ts? What happens to them? The book of Nahum speaks to that as well. The book of Nahum presents in, in a few short chapters a very wide picture of the character and the person of God. The book is unique. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came... Oops, that's Jonah. Book of Nahum. I'm back in Jonah again. We already had Jonah. The kids did that. Thank you very much. So from Jonah, Micah, Nahum. The book of Nahum chapter 1. The book of Nahum starts out this way. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of Nahum is about Nineveh. These are the prophets, this is the prophet's message to Nineveh. It's unique in that it's the book of the vision of Nahum. It's the only prophecy that's identified as a book or as a, as a scroll right up front. It was apparently not stood and given somewhere in Judah. And Nahum, unlike Jonah, was not told to go to Nineveh because now it's too late. No, the message, the decree is just sent to them. It is written down. And it is sent, I don't know, maybe the Ninevites had an Amazon Prime subscription and they got it shipping free, I don't know. But this book arrives in Nineveh. And it has a very, very serious message for them. But it's unusual among the prophets in its delivery in that way. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkosh. Does anybody know where Elkosh is? I don't either. Nobody seems to. And nobody's heard of Nahum other than... So here we have an unknown prophet from an unknown place, and yet this prophet knows God, and he gives us a view, a a 360 view of God that we find few other places so tightly told, so brief, so succinct, and yet covers various aspects of God's power and God's greatness, who he is and what he's like that he's merciful, but he's also just. He is good, and he is in control. So we have the choice between us. The, the, the way of the world, the, the perspective that presses in around us of philosophers like Hume, or the presentation of God, God's revelation of himself, given from his word, and the prophet Nahum. Now, I've divided Nahum, well, three ways in what I want to share with you this morning, and one of those we'll scan through the book as a whole. We'll spend most of our time in the first chapter. I want to, I want to tell you something just about the, uh, the overall context. The book of Nahum, one of the minor prophets, is occurring late in the history of the book of Second uh, Kings or Second Chronicles. By the time of Nahum, in fact, I gave you a historical overview on the back of your notes. Don't read it now. Just glance, make sure it's there turn back. The big date that I left off, I don't know why, but the big date I left off was 722 BC when Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, comes in and they take away into captivity the northern nation of Israel. They take them away and they are gone. They take them away and they scatter them through the empire. They bring in other peoples to live in the land. So the people are all mixed together now. That's what the Assyrians did. They destroyed and wiped out 
not just the people they killed, but the entire peoples. That nation wouldn't rise again after Assyria took it because they scatter them, they disperse them. Okay, 722 B.C. Now, that happens because of Israel's sin. God allows that judgment to come upon them. God had made promises. God had rescued them out of, out of Egypt. There you have the Exodus. And in the Exodus, we are told, Exodus 34, that God is a merciful God. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Time will run out. And for his people, time has run out. You see, there's a subtext. Time has now run out for the, for the people of Nineveh. They had tasted of God's mercy, and they had cast it aside. What's left? There's nothing left but judgment. If we taste of God's mercy, if we've known about God's mercy, the, the, the sacrifice of God's only son, the, the payment and penalty for sin, and yet we've said, no, I'm going to do it my way. We cast that aside and go our way. There's nowhere else to go but into judgment. And that's what we see in the book of Nahum. There's nowhere else for these people but judgment. Now, Nahum's name means comfort. It's not a very comforting book, certainly not if you're a Ninevite. But it's comforting if you're from Judah. And if you look in that historical overview later, you'll see what's going on. There's interactions this Assyrian bully is having with the nation of Judah, which still remains, the southern kingdom, still remains. And uh, so there's interaction and intrigue going on back and forth, and they are very worried about what Assyria is going to do to them. And God is saying, I have got Assyria. Their time has come. So first of all, what do we learn about God from the book of Nahum? Starting out in chapter 1, let's let's pick up the chapter 2. We'll read verses 2 to 6. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. Now, that's not the warm, fuzzy God you were looking for this morning, is it? That's not the comforting God. That's not the, oh, that's so encouraging to hear. Unless you're in trouble, unless you're being oppressed by evil and wicked people, then to hear that your God is a jealous God. And he is an avenging God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The Lord, verse 3, is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. That sounds just like Exodus 34, doesn't it? There's a Route 66 connection way back there, that mile post. God hasn't changed. God is the same. Time has run by and time has run out. God's mercy does not extend forever to those who refuse it. He will not leave the guilty and punish his ways in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Think about that. The sea and the rivers, they ran dry to provide a way of escape for God's people. They also run dry in the midst of drought, which is his judgment. Bashan and Carmel, very prosperous places, wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. I still think of that mountainside as we climbed up Mount Defiance. Interesting name, Mount Defiance. You could have called Nineveh that. As we climbed up Mount Defiance, there was a side of the hillside that was just shattered rock. 
I'd be hard-pressed to pick most of those rocks up, but they were just shattered and broken. The mountain was broken. That, that, it spoke to me something about our God as well as about our world. Our world is broken. Our God shatters mountains. Mount St. Helens is nothing to what God can do. And the first thing I want to, I, I to take away from that is when you think of God, when you consider God in your mind and in your life, I want to urge you to use uppercase pronouns. What do I mean by that? You know, there's a variety of Bible translations. Some Bible translations, I know the New King James does this, the New American Standard does this, the NIV does not. I'm not picking on the NIV. The ESV, which we just ordered new pew Bibles, by the way, just to complete the sides, got nothing to do with the message. But the ESV doesn't use uppercase pronouns for God either. But some Bible versions did just to make it stand out that when God is mentioned, even he or you is a personal name when it comes to God. We honor God special. That's why. Now, let's not get wrapped up about this in Bible translations. The King James didn't use uppercase letters for pronouns either. So let's not get too traditional about it. But in our thinking, that's what I'm talking about. In our thinking, use uppercase pronouns when you're thinking about God, when you're referring to God. Elevate your thinking of God in your mind, and you do that by getting your thinking about God from his revelation, not from our own imagination. You see, easily in our minds, God is the God of our own imagination. God is the God we think he is. I remember hearing somebody say not too long ago, they called me on the phone, there was a, in the midst of a catastrophe, but they're saying, well, I told her this, I, I hope this was okay, but I told her this, that, that I couldn't imagine any God who would such and such. Okay. Well, in the situation, I, I, I would agree with her about God's character, but I don't agree that I'm going to define God or if I'll worship God or not, based upon what I imagine God's character to be. God is God. And I am not. And I need to put my, I I bring myself in line and into submission, into subjection to the God who is God. Think about Jonah. Jonah says, I'm not obeying the God that I worship. Really? How do you worship a God that you don't obey? Jesus put it this way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? We, we, that gets very practical when we simply know this is what God would have me to do. It's not just my imagination. I know there's something in Scripture here that speaks to my situation. God has showed it to me. You see, often our problem is not we need to know more. It's what we do with what we do know. And often God gives us more light in line with what we do, with what we do know. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? God is the God of the uppercase pronouns in my mind. Like Jonah, we need God's revelation of who he is more than we need our imagination of who God must be. The second and third centuries, the church was not in a, a warm and comfortable and, 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 and fuzzy place. It was difficult to be a Christian. It was like being a Christian in the Sudan or in Saudi Arabia today in many places in the first and second century. It was scary. There was heavy persecution just because you named the name of Christ, and yet they did. They must because this is who God is. 
It's not that I'm afraid God's going to squash me like a bug. This is who God is, and he is worthy of our acknowledgement of him as he is. And I can dare, I can dare to honor this God in the face of trouble, in the face of rejection, because he is coming. I like the line. I had a little fun with the line about dad's coming soon. And kids thinking about that, but think about that. I, I, any of you remember the day when your mom told you, just wait till dad gets home? Yeah, do you remember that? You ever hear about that? Yeah, yeah. But if you were the one who had been picked on, that was good news, wasn't it? You were going to be sooner or later. I remember sometimes, I shouldn't tell you this, it sounds vindictive of me. But I remember sometimes, my dad would sometimes be late, but they'd have a meeting or something, he'd be late getting home from work. But sometimes I was out there at the end of the driveway waiting for dad to come home. And finally I was going to be vindicated from these three miserable older sisters that I had. Don't tell them I said that. God is the God of, our, of uppercase pronouns, at least in our imaginations. As we move on in Nahum... Now, that, that's introductory. That's, this is our king. This is our God. Now, what does he have to say to Nineveh? It picks up in verse 12. This is what the Lord says. That's how I knew that it picked up in verse 12. This is what the Lord says. And there's an interesting arrangement here. As we go out now, we're, 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 it's unfolded before us. God's coming. God is coming to Nineveh. God is coming to this world. And there's a parallel here. I'm not going to go into all the examples of that, but there's a parallel here. Judah is meant to listen in on this. Judah is actually addressed a couple of times. I think when, when, when Nahum sent this, he sent a courtesy copy to Judah because this is good news for them. There's some comfort for Judah in the midst of this announcement of judgment. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. Isn't that good news for Judah? I will, I will tear their shackles away. I will break off their yoke from your neck. Judah, live in light of expecting God's coming. God's people, it may be difficult now, but live in the light of the expectation of his coming. Your king is coming. Your God is coming. You can leave this place today. You can go out of here today. And I don't know the midst of the troubles that you're in. But I'm quite sure that there are troubles. I know that there are. I don't know what they are, but I know they're there. And yet we can go out of this place today expecting his coming, expecting, certain with the confidence that one day our God will take everything that's been made wrong and make it right. God will vindicate those who have had faith in him. There is relief in God's, just, in God's justice. The, the main body of the book of Nahum is divided into sections that parallel from the front to the back into a middle point. So I've laid that out as an outline, the gray notes before you. I'm, I'm not going to read through the whole book. You could take that model and you could read both halves of it. I'm going to highlight from the front half. And we'll get to the center. And then you could go back and compare the second half as well. It's quite intriguing. But God marks the center that way. But also the seriousness of the message. So there we are. We're in the first part. There is relief in God's justice. Relief for his people of Judah. Look at verse 15. Look. There on the mountain, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace, your God reigns. 
is added other places. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. The announcement of judgment on Nineveh is good news for God's people. The announcement of the Lord's coming is good news for those who have believed on him. There's a dramatic call to alarm, and this is now God is envisioning the picture of what it's going to be like in Nineveh on this day. An attacker advances against you. Guard the fortresses. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them to waste, have ruined their vines. Again, he connects it back to Judah. Good news for Judah. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day that they made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. He, he summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on the way. They dash to the city walls. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open. The palace collapses. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. God has spoken. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breast. Nineveh, I love this imagery, catch this. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Can you hear that sound? As it goes down the drain. That's Nineveh. Time is up. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. The end has come. It's intriguing in the next section, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, but also, also paralleled in chapter 3, their own sin is what condemns them. Look at 11 and 12. Where now is the lion's den? See, lions were hunted in, in, in Assyria. The Assyrian kings took great pride in their prowess at, at attacking and defeating lions. Well, they used spears and bows and arrows and stuff, but still, they thought that was a pretty good deal. And they saw lions as basically terrible animals that were against humanity and were destroyers of society. Well, I guess if you had a lion living in town, you would see that as unhelpful for the peace and calm in society. And so they would destroy the lions. And God says, where are the lions now? Nineveh, you are the lions. You are the destroyers of humanity. You have brutalized others like wild beasts, and now I have come to hold you accountable. Verse 12, the lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. The way Assyria treated others is the way that they're going to be treated by the, by the empire that overtakes them, which will be Babylon. Their own sin is what's going to condemn them. That comes out all the more clearly in chapter 3. God is just as well as in control. Our own sin condemns us. Their own sin condemned you. Look at verse 13. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is a great place to see the parallel. Look over in chapter 3 and verse 5. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. There is that final declaration of judgment. I am against you. I will burn up your chariots in smoke. The sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on earth. The voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. The voice of your messengers. Do you remember when Assyria sent a messenger to the walls of Jerusalem and there cried out against not only Judah and King Hezekiah, but also their God. What other God has been able to save any of the peoples? 
People of Jew- Jerusalem, don't, don't listen to King Hezekiah. Don't listen to him say that you're, he's going to pray the Lord and the Lord is going to save you. What other God has saved you from the king of Assyria's great power? Hezekiah took those words and in his prayer he laid them out before the Lord. And he says, Lord, you've got a problem. And the Lord says, no, that's not a problem. And the, and the, and the next morning, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers woke up dead. The rest of them crawled back to Assyria. And the king of Assyria was assassinated by his own family members in, his own, in the temple of his own God. That's our God. No more will the voice of your messengers blaspheme against the king of kings and lord of lords at the walls of Jerusalem or any place else. The centerpiece of judgment, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Woe to the city of blood. And this is one of those places, there are several places in this book where who God is talking about, who is being judged, is a little ambiguous because the message is wider than than Nineveh. And in some ways, the characteristics of Nineveh also describe far too closely the characteristics of Manasseh and Manasseh's Judah. There's a lot of Assyria that has crept into God's people. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Wow, you could read that and compare that to headlines today and ask God, how long can you wait? The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears. Is he talking about Nineveh's defenses? Or the invading army? We're not really sure. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot alluring the mistress of sorceries, the, who enslave nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. The language there is remarkably similar to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, when God will judge the world in finality. That's why I said this book is bigger than merely Nineveh. This book prefigures, this book describes to us what it's going to be like when the Lord of glory steps down and exercises his will. Go out today expecting his coming. God takes sin seriously. Sin is never taken lightly. Just because God is waiting, just because God is long-suffering does not mean he does not see, does not mean he doesn't care. And I need to be encouraged by that and I need to be warned by that. But God does see, and God does care. And when I play lightly or loosely with God's mercy to me, he cares about that too. Oh my, everything has changed. You see, the, the God of glory has stepped down and intervened in human history, and he sent his son, and his son lived and then died in our place, and we have believed in him. We have identified with him. We, we celebrated that last week when somebody is buried with Christ in baptism and raised to newness of life, raised to be different, raised to live different, raised to pursue a different end in the midst of this rebellious world. But too easily we are still allured too easily we are still attracted to go along, standing maybe a little distant at times or places, but going along by and large in the same goals as life before. 
a new direction to some extent, but with, as I said last week, the same perception, some of the same mindsets and outlooks and the same goal when those goals lead to nothing. What is it that has changed because of your faith in Christ in your goals today? What is it that has changed because your assurance that God is coming, what is it that is different in what you work for and what you press towards and what you give your time to, who you talk to, and why? You see, not only is there that aspect about the Lord is coming and and I need to take my own life seriously, but I need to take the life of the people around me seriously. The Lord is coming. And this world, as it's been said, is living under the present plight of condemnation. The, the, the reality of judgment is hanging over the human race, waiting to drop, waiting to crush. And people you know, people you like, people you care about are going to be here in the book of Nahum. Friends you have, those you work with, you'll... Moan with them a little bit that the Seahawks are still having too many penalties and they've got to get that fixed. 180 yards? Really? And yet they don't know Christ. And we're talking about 15-yard penalties? There's a much greater penalty that's coming, isn't there? There's a much greater weight that is pressing upon them and they don't know. or They haven't taken it to heart yet. And you and I are placed around people. Now, their guilt is in their own hands. And yet you and I are somewhere nearby. What will we do for those who are without hope and without God in this world? We send Ruth to Zimbabwe. Our job is not done. We are on mission here to the scores of people that we have contact with that are right around us. And have courage in that. Don't be discouraged in that. Don't be pressed down and intimidated and and backed away off into some irrelevant corner because they might laugh or joke or pick or poke. Your God is coming. Your God is coming. Go out today expecting his coming. And finally, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. Trust in God's goodness in the midst of this evil. Looking around, seeing the evil. Can God really be good? If God really is in control, God really is control. He is coming, but he is also good and yet tenderly merciful. Look at verse 7 and 8. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. That's where you and I rest. If you believe in Christ, that's where you rest. The Lord is good. Oh, I know myself and I'm afraid. But the Lord is good. I don't need to be afraid of him. The Lord is good. The Lord is merciful. He's a refuge in times of trouble, if I will but take it. He cares for those who trust in him. I don't know what the trouble is. I don't know what what uncertainties you're facing that worry you, but I do know this. He cares for those who trust in him. And that needs to be part of our understanding of who God is. He is great. He is powerful. He is coming. And he cares for those who put their trust in him. But verse 8, but verse 8, and this goes back to those people around us. This goes back to those who are without hope and without God in the world. Verse 8 says, but with an overwhelming flood, with a tsunami, he will make an end of, and the NIV says Nineveh, but it's ambiguous in the Hebrew. 
He will make an end of you, and he hasn't yet really declared who you is. He will make an end of you, whoever it is who does not trust in him. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Now we're back in Revelation again, in the outer darkness where there is nothing but wailing and gnashing of teeth. You see, Nahum is much bigger, much bigger than an ancient city of Nineveh that was finally going to meet its end. No, humanity's at stake here, folks. But you and I, you and I, we know God's mercy. And we are the ones for some people around us. If we know God's mercy and we know God's goodness, even in the midst of evil, we know what's going on. This is a wicked world. It is under the power, the sway, the influence, the Bible says, of the evil one, and yet God is good. And though he waits, God is in control. Evil must be judged. Flee then to the cross. That's the message. That's the gospel. We've embraced it. And there's people around us who haven't. There's people around us who haven't. You know, verses 7 and 8 parallel John 3.16. Let me turn there in closing. John 3.16, the well-known verses in the Bible, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He cares for those who trust in him, who believe on his Son, For God did not send the the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. It's not that they're going to be condemned. That's what I mean. It's not that they're going to one day maybe be judged. No, in God's eyes, if they have not believed in Christ, they are already condemned in his presence. Already living under the present plight of condemnation because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. God says, this is it. Light has come into the world, but men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And for that, they will, they must, they have to be judged if God is good and God is in control. There's no escape out of it. But the escape is the Son. The Son is the issue. The Son is everything. Now think about it. You're God. Well, you're not, but think about it if you were. Your Son. You gave your own Son the person of God in humanity dies. All these rebels need to do is believe in his death for them and they can be spared. To agree with God about their sin and their need for his rescue and they will be spared. And imagine, they shrug. They walk away. They say, nah, I don't need that. What will God do? What would you do? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He is good, he is just, and he is in control. Because he is good, we rest in his goodness. We trust in his grace. Trust in God's goodness in the midst of the evil. Because he is in control, go out here today expecting his coming. In new confidence, and in new determination that there's somebody you know who needs to know your Savior. Let's pray. Father, from the book of Nahum, we're reminded that you will judge.
There is no escape. There's no other way out except through your son. Jesus paid it all. Father, we thank you for that this morning. We've sung that this morning, and we are grateful for salvation in Jesus. And Lord, we would ask you again that as a church, would you use us? Lord, if the people around us are truly not merely just a little mixed up, having trouble in their marriages and overcome with debt, Lord, if the people around us truly, more than anything else, need an eternal Savior, would you help us to come alongside them for their good and for your glory? We pray it in Jesus' name.